Okay. I, I should have probably introduced myself first. I'm Paul Volpring from uh, UC San Francisco. Uh, it's been a, a pleasure all these years with John to uh, to do this course. And again, to echo John's point, uh, we uh, we really try to keep the costs of, of our CME programs uh, under control. That's why the comments about the, the food and, and we find that academic venues are often, uh, frankly, uh, the least expensive uh, compared to you know downtown hotel ballrooms where we used to be. The program uh, features uh, topics that we hope are, are relevant to your practice. Uh, the first one uh, is given by a great friend of mine, Peter Chin Hong. Peter is a professor at uh, UCSF where I'm uh, also working. Uh, Peter is a transplant ID person uh, and deals with a lot of really sick hospitalized patients with uh, complicated infections. And over the course of years, we've noticed that there is an increasing use of biologic agents in medicine. And he's going to walk us through, uh, through this uh, challenging area, uh, but increasingly relevant, I think, as our patients with HIV uh, age into the situation where they need these drugs. So Peter, welcome to the program. It's kind of like a wedding, he's walking down the aisle. <laughs> Morning, everyone. Thanks, John. Thanks, Paul. How's everyone doing this morning? Great, that's great. It's great to see all of you here and beautiful springtime in Chicago. San Francisco, I think it's too cold always for me. It's kind of like if you turn the air conditioning too high and you leave it on so high for the rest of the year. Anyway, um, so as Paul said, I'm going to really talk about biologics today and, and at the end of the talk, hopefully it will make sense to you and as a topic that you should know about. And you'll be hearing about these agents increasingly as your patients get older. So uh, these are my uh, financial relationships. And these are the learning objectives. So what are, we, what are we going to do in this talk? We're going to talk about the types of conditions for which biologic agents are used in HIV-infected patients. Briefly talk about the mechanism of action so that if your patient asks you, how do these drugs work? And of course, I think the pharmacists in the audience will already know very well how these drugs work. But for the rest of the providers, um, really just briefly telling patients about the mechanism of action might be helpful and for you to understand the complications. We will describe some of the infectious disease complications as well as other complications like malignancies and autoimmune diseases that may arise. And we'll talk about prevention. So first of all, as you know, HIV-infected patients are living longer, um, where, where the lifespan is really caught up almost to the general population. And as patients are living longer, uh, there are certainly more autoimmune disease and more malignancies that are being seen in this population. But this is all couched in this sobering statistic that you'll hear more about as the last talk of today, which is that the opioid epidemic is probably fueling, for the first time, a decline in life expectancy in the United States in two consecutive years, which hadn't been seen for several decades. And it's way below some of the other comparable countries. So as I said, autoimmune diseases and cancer increase with age. And these are some of the autoimmune diseases and malignancies that you've probably seen. So with a show of hands, how many people have had a patient with one of these things? So pretty much almost everybody. So I would say that because almost everyone has seen, has a patient in one of these conditions, it really behooves us to understand a little bit more about some of the biologic agents that are increasingly being used to treat these conditions. So with 
many of the autoimmune diseases and connective tissue diseases like RA, vasculitis, Crohn's disease, UC, and psoriasis, we're using increasingly TNF-alpha inhibitors. And of course, that's probably one of the classic uh, biologics that have been around for several years now. So we have some more robust data as to what patients are getting in terms of complications. With lymphoma, um, many of our HIV patients have probably uh, used rituximab. And that's one of the poster child, that's probably the poster child of the anti-CD20 agents that affect humoral immunity. And finally, the new kids on the block are the checkpoint blockade agents and the CAR T cells that you've been hearing about probably in the news. And they've been used increasingly to treat malignancies such as melanoma, prostate cancer, lung cancer most recently has been in the news, and leukemia. So what is a biologic? Well, it's kind of a very broad definition, and it's really any biologically derived product. It binds or interferes with a specific molecular target, which could include monoclonal antibodies, receptor, things that look like receptors, and small molecules. And one pearl is that you can get a clue as to what kind, where the, where the product is derived based on the name. So if something has sept in it, like a tanner sept, it's referring to fusion of a receptor on the FC part, which is the working really, the business part of the human IgG uh, and, uh, molecule. And if, you, if the agent has MAB at the end of it, it in, indicates that it's a monoclonal antibody. It has XI MAB in it, chimeric monoclonal antibody, and chimera is this mythologic Greek uh, creature that has like a, I think a lion's head and, and a goat's body and a serpent's tail. So the chimera really refers to a bunch of different things put together like in this mythologic Greek creature. And if it's Zumab, it indicates that it's a humanized monoclonal antibody. So I often get the question as to who is most immunosuppressed. And we have a lot of, inc increasingly, we're seeing a lot of immunosuppressed patients in the hospital, not just HIV, like in the old days, and certainly with antiretroviral agents, these patients are not as immunosuppressed as previously, but uh, solid organ, hematopoietic stem cell transplant recipients, as well as an, a huge number of people on biologics. So you can see in the bolded areas, autoimmune disease treatment, solid tumor treatment, um, those kind of fall in the middle of the scale of people who are immunosuppressed with the stem cell transplants really being the most immunosuppressed. When you overlay HIV on top of that, you can see that depending on CD4 count, there's a second dimension of immunosuppression you have to think about. So it can get quite complicated in, term, in terms of adjudicating how immunosuppressed your patient is. So the type of immune defect is really related to the type of drugs you use. So if you're treating with rituximab, which affects antibodies, you're really going to affect humoral immunity. So the, one of the first lines of defense. If you're treating with TNF-alpha inhibitors or many of the other biologics that I'll put in another category, you're really talking about cell-mediated immunity, similar to HIV. And when you think about cancer chemotherapy in general, you're really attacking the innate immunity, the, the first line of defense of the skin, like dendritic cells, et cetera, and, and, and neutrophils. So how is this different from what we know about in terms of uh, thinking about our patients on the scale of immunosuppression in HIV infection? Well, in HIV infection, it's pretty easy because we have good robust data from large cohort studies, and we know that 
the immune defect is really due to the death of CD4 T cells. And we think about opportunistic infections based on the, the number of the T cells that the patient has. So if the T cells are 50, that gives us one level up there, 200, another, uh, et cetera. In non-HIV immunosuppression, like <laughs> biologics, it's really heterogeneous. So it becomes very, very hard to adjudicate someone's risk of infection, except from you being very observant. And that's one of the themes. I think the, the rule book is still being written, and you are all going to contribute to that because we don't really know all the risks that people have as yet. So being watchful and, and seeing what your patient has with these agents on board is really uh, going to be very important in the future. And in terms of adjudicating uh, opturistic infections, there's no there are no reliable tests available. So we can't have a C we don't have a CD4 count when somebody's on biologic to really help us gauge what to start in terms of prophylaxis in many cases. So I think it's probably best to illustrate some of these complications by some of these real life cases that we've had. And they've come from all over the world from some of my colleagues who've contributed cases based on their patients um, in front of them. So this first one comes from Boston. This is a 56-year-old woman with HIV, CD4 count of 360 viral load, undetectable with prone disease. She's managed on a TNF-alpha inhibitor, some of the classic ones, infliximab and 6-MP. She comes into the emergency department complaining of shortness of breath for three weeks. What else do you want to know? So for, this, for these exercises, what I'm going to ask you to do is quickly turn to the person next to you and, and come up with an answer as to what next you want to know about this patient, and then we'll probably have somebody contribute from the audience. So the next minute, just turn to the person next to you and find out what else you want to know about this patient, coming in with a TNF-alpha inhibitor and shortness of breath. Okay, so any, uh, any answers, any possible thoughts about this patient? From the back? Great, so great, great uh, answer there. So the, the, one of the answers was, you want to know where she's from? You know, what are risk factors for TB? Was she screened, et cetera? So I would say that, um, so that's perfect. She's PPD negative. Uh, she lives in New York. And she came back four weeks ago from a trip to Puerto Rico, where she visited family and helped with property cleanup after the hurricane. So um, does this help you guys think about what else she might be at risk for? So TB, of course, is, is what people thought about as the first line of, of risk. Any other possible illnesses? Histo, right, perfect. So uh, histoplasmosis, we think about certainly in this part of the country, Ohio, Mississippi River Valley as well, the classic area. But histo is actually very widespread worldwide. And in the Caribbean, it's also endemic. This is no, ex et cetera, uh, no exception. So um, in this case, uh, it was histoplasmosis. It, uh, it was very hard to diagnose because people in New York and Boston, they weren't used to thinking about histoplasmosis. Um, and um, eventually she did get, get diagnosed. So after the chest X-ray and, and gauging a TB risk factor, she got a CT scan. And the CT scan really uh, showed uh, very characteristic nodules all over the lungs. You can see these very beautiful nodules that are uh, present here. And uh, the diagnosis was acute histoplasmosis. Histoplasmosis, of course, is a fungus, endemic mycosis, 
like coxie, it lives in the soil. When you do a lot of, uh, have a lot of soil contact, you can uh, have the soil go up, uh, you know, go in, inhaled into the lungs. And in this case, it's acute histoplasmosis. So the diagnosis was the first suspicion was the CT scan and then uh, urinary histoplasma antigen that was positive, a chest CT scan, uh, as I showed here. So the classic uh, opportunistic infection following the use of TNF-alpha inhibitors, as you pointed out, was tuberculosis. So that's really the classic OI. And this answer wasn't really known. The magnitude wasn't really known for several years. Uh, in this, probably the, one of the best reports, looking at the experience between 1998 and 2001, there were 70, 70 cases of TB. And the median time to diagnosis was 12 weeks. So it wasn't an overnight diagnosis. You have time to think about it um, to make sure your patient is on. Of course, before they start even, you'd want to make sure they're screened, treated for latent TB infection as needed. But certainly, if you forgot, you still have some time after the initiation of uh, anti-TNF-alpha inhibitor before some of these OIs take place. So the median is 12 weeks. And the most interesting thing about how people got TB in, in these cases was that it was outside the lungs. So although we think about TB as mainly causing pulmonary disease, many of these patients actually came up with weird TB, like, like how we used to see MAC, which is another mycobacterium, and lymph nodes outside of the, of, of the lungs, really attesting to how TNF is TNF-alpha receptors are really important in, in TB uh, surveillance and, and treatment and, and management. So that when you block it, the TB is so profound that it goes into the bloodstream and zooms all over the body and, and causes disease outside of the lungs, including miliary TB. When we think about mycobacterium, we think about non-TB as well. So in, in, in another survey of serious infection of patients with TNF-alpha inhibitors in the United States, uh, there were 30, 17 cases of TB, but really the lion's share was, um, in terms of mycobacterium, was non-tuberculous mycobacterium, including MAC, but also other kinds of mycobacterium as well. And the surprising uh, finding of the study was that histoplasmosis was actually more common than TB or non-tuberculous mycobacterium. So I think people caught on to the whole TB idea, started screening, treating uh, intensively before starting agents. But then um, these, these soil uh, uh, fungi are becoming more important now. So that in, in 2008, the FDA issued an alert uh, talking about the high propensity to develop uh, histoplasmosis in patients on TNF-alpha inhibitors. And you can see on the map of the United States that you know, we, endemic mycoses, of course, are not only limited to histoplasmosis, which is in the turquoise color here, but also to other um, fungi like Cryptococcus and Coxie, which are more endemic. Coxie for sure is more endemic in, in Arizona, in parts of California where I live. And then Cryptococcus gadae is, is becoming more important uh, on the West Coast in general. So let's turn to another case. And again, this is a, a real life case. This is contributed from one of my colleagues in Hong Kong. So you can kind of think about that region in terms of risk. A 42-year-old male with Crohn disease for three years. He was started on uh, infliximab, which is a TNF-alpha inhibitor, after persistent diarrhea for five months. He was admitted with three weeks of shortness of breath, low-grade temperatures, dry cough, no help with amoxicillin for one week. So in Hong Kong, they treat community-acquired pneumonia as a first-line agent. Instead of a azithromycin or a ZPAC, they give uh, amoxicillin, and it had no impact. So... Uh, 
maybe turn to your neighbor for a few seconds and, and think about what else might be going on in this patient. So no, no, um, and, and, and say it's not TB, so we can cross that. <laughs> I know you guys will say, wow, that's such an easy question and, and, and move on, but it's not TB and it's not community-acquired pneumonia. Again, another patient coming with shortness of breath. Any, any thoughts about this? Maybe somebody from this side of the, the room. <laughs> no answer is a wrong answer here. This is internal medicine. Okay, well, maybe an easier question is what diagnostic test would you send? What other things could be going on in general? It doesn't have to be because the patient's on TNF-alpha inhibitors. So I heard somebody say respiratory viruses. So certainly that's kind of a, on, on the list as well. It's, it's Hong Kong, uh, you know, uh, respiratory viruses are important. Antibiotics wouldn't have impact on that. Um, so that's, you know, they, they send a wide battery of tests, including sputum, AFB, of course, uh, which we would do. Uh, but I told you this ended up being negative for that. Uh, respiratory virus PCR, which was negative, did a chest CT scan as a second line uh, diagnostic test after the chest X-ray, which showed these ground glass opacities. BAL uh, was positive for P, uh, PCP, uh, HIV antibody was positive, which wasn't known before. And the diagnosis was pneumocystis pneumonia. <laughs> Patient was treated with uh, clindamycin and primaquine and started on antiretroviral therapy. So I think this case really illustrates many points to me. First of all, the CD4 count was above 200, so it wasn't really in the PCP range. The patient was not diagnosed with HIV prior to that. So maybe, and this hasn't really been talked about a lot in the literature, there was a synergy between you know, being HIV infected, being on a TNF-alpha inhibitor uh, agent, and getting TB, uh, PCP at a CD4 count where you wouldn't necessarily expect it to be. Um, so another case of PCB that we saw, and this came from UCSF, is a 74-year-old HIV-negative man with interstitial lung disease and chronic lymphocytic leukemia, or CLL, on one of these other biologics, so not a TNF-alpha inhibitor, uh, admitted with progressive shortness of breath on exertion and dry cough for one month. So again, you get clues from the subacute presentation. It's not acute like community-acquired pneumonia or, or influenza. It's kind of like your typical PCP patient except that this patient was HIV uninfected. So when you think about PCP and biologics, it's really a black box. Um, many of the agents have no specific guidance in terms of studying uh, PCP prophylaxis. And when one study looked at a ret retrospective analysis of over 2,000 patients with relapsed CLL or, or non-Hodgkin's lymphoma on one of the biologics that we won't focus too much on today, and I'll give you an approach to thinking about biologics at the end of the talk, um, the patients had a relative risk of getting PCP of 12.5 with a median time to PCP of 141 days. Yet despite that, there's no standard PCP prophylaxis guidelines um, per se. Another case, a 69-year-old HIV-negative woman with low-grade lymphoma treated only with rituximab. So rituximab is one of these anti-CD20 agents, so it, it really destroys B cells. And months after treatment, developed slowly progressive mental status changes. 
CSF was positive for JC virus and MRI was consistent with PML. Diagnosis was PML. So again, these cases illustrate not that we have specific OIs necessary with specific agents, although the linkage between TNF-alpha inhibitors and TB is very robust. Um, but like these cases, some of these cases illustrate, sometimes you get OIs when you don't really expect them. So again, being vigilant is probably going to be the main pearl and take-home point for today. So we talked about biologics and, and uh, mycobacterial disease, biologics and fungi. Uh, what about bi biologics and viral infections? So hepatitis B reactivation is very famous and associated with TNF-alpha inhibitors. And in fact, before starting TNF-alpha inhibitors, you really wanted to screen your patients for hep B infection, which all of you do anyway because of HIV. Um, in TNF-alpha inhibitors, uh, it is pretty common, but in rituximab, it's also common as well. In terms of JC virus, like the last case, um, the famous biologic that has been associated with that is the drug that's used to treat MS, called natalizumab. That's been famously associated with PML, so much so that people, before they start natalizumab, uh, they get checked for JC virus uh, antibody test. And if they're positive, they don't get, they can't get off of this drug, just given the high risk. That last patient that I presented wasn't on natalizumab, was on rituximab. And there are also reports of PML with this agent, but there's no guidance about necessary screening as rigorously as with natalizumab because the cases aren't high enough to reach that threshold. But probably the, one of the most common viral infections that we see post-biologic use is varicella zoster virus. And now we have a very safe uh, VZV vaccine that we can use in our patients. So I think hopefully the incidence of VZV would go down uh, following the use of this agent. So let's turn our attention now to cancer immunotherapy and the two new kids on the block. So these include checkpoint blockade inhibitors and CAR T cells. So this really is a new era of cancer immunotherapy. But the concept isn't a new concept. In fact, what these, these pictures illustrate is a case from 1800s where a surgeon in New York called William Coley first noticed that his patient with this very disfiguring sarcoma, as you can see on this cheek on the, on the left side of, of the screen, um, got infected with some bacterial infection, a serious bacterial infection. And after he got infected with the bacterial infection, his sarcoma started to disappear magically. So probably what happened is that the immune cells that got activated in response to the bacterial infection also serendipitously was able to target the sarcoma and began treating it. And this was really probably the first evidence that you know, activating our immune system in whatever way could probably help not only against infections, but also against malignancies and really attest to the importance of the immune system, as we know from HIV-infected patients, for malignancies as well. So Will, William Cooley thought he would have a big startup in those days and like started mixing this cocktail of lots of weird bugs and giving it to patients, and, but unfortunately, nobody else got cured except for this uh, serendipitous patient. So I, I went also probably because he didn't move to California, his startup failed. <laughs> but you might have heard about Jimmy Carter. So Jimmy Carter had this miracle occur, which that is that he had stage four melanoma, and he got one of these new agents, which was an investigational uh, clinical trials at the time, which was a checkpoint blockade inhibitor. And then his stage four uh, melanoma, which 
had 100% mortality in general got cured. So you can see from some of the headlines how Jimmy Carter beat cancer and new immunotherapy drug behind Jimmy Carter's cancer cure. And this was all called uh, from a checkpoint blockade inhibitor. More, more recently in the news, uh, you've probably been hearing about pembrolizumab, uh, which has been, again, one of these miracles that occur, uh, that's occurring in lung cancer. Again, very, very high efficacy of using this checkpoint blockade uh, agent uh, against uh, these malignancies. So what the checkpoint blockade uh, agent does is that it activates the immune system to go and fight uh, these malignancies. Um, and not in as a specific way as CAR T cells that we'll get to in a second, but sort of in, in a more non-specific way. And um, so that uh, what happens is that there, there are checkpoints or mechanisms in our body to tell the immune system to slow down because you don't want it to be too activated all the time. So what this drug is doing is exploiting this, uh, this system that we've developed over time to, to slow down the immune system by blocking that mechanism so that, that slowing down is blocked, so the immune system is constantly being activated, and in that way, it's attacking the cancer that uh, these specific malignancies that are being seen. So I think thinking about the complications of these checkpoint blockade uh, agents is best illustrated by some of the early experiments, which were done actually right across the bay from me in Berkeley. And um, what they did is that they were testing these agents uh, and these mice models with uh, melanoma, kind of the precursor to the Jimmy Carter uh, trial. And they found that when the, these mice had metastatic melanoma, they were cured. But what was happening was a very strange thing is that this hair was being depigmented. And what was happening was that the, the immune activation also was causing uh, autoimmune-like disease in the, in the melanin-containing cells of the, of, the, of the hair, of the skin. So that, again, you're getting the benefit in terms of activating the immune system, but you're also getting the, the potential complication, which is that it's going to also attack things that are, it's not supposed to attack, including parts of your own body. So uh, I think we're, we're very vigilant of these autoimmune diseases that are probably going to arise, and, but it will take a longer time for people to really recognize and, and describe what is really happening with these agents. We think about infection risk not from activating the immune system. As I said, when you activate the immune system, it's generally a good thing for infections. But what happens in checkpoint blockade inhibitors is that when you activate the immune system, we're still trying to figure out how to titrate that dose. It's so activated that you need some other agent to quiet it down. So the agent you give to quiet it down is usually one of these TNF-alpha inhibitors or, or some agent that blocks the cytokine release. And that agent is the agent that is the immunosuppression uh, agent. So until we come up with better alternatives that are more personalized, we're going to see people on these agents, uh, because we have to use uh, other biologics to treat the complications, get uh, the optimistic infections uh, that we talked about in the earlier part of the talk. So this is illustrated in this case, 52-year-old um, male, a real case. This comes from San Francisco General Hospital, or Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital, as, as it's now called. It's actually a quite uh, beautiful hospital, but um, some of the, the sculptures are a little bit uh, you know, wonky, but, but beautiful in, in, in many ways. 52-year-old um, male with uh, HIV, CD4 count of 450, viral load undetectable on abacavir, dalutegravir, and lamivudine 
with skin squamous cell cancer, enrolled in AMC trial on Nivibumab, which is a checkpoint blockade inhibitor. So the, one of the other pearls of this talk is that there's no way you're going to know all these names and what they are, but if you look them up, you at least can figure out what box they fit into. And the way I set up uh, the talk in the beginning, you think about the TNF-alpha inhibitor box, think about the anti-CD20 box, you think about checkpoint blockades, CAR T cells that we'll talk about next, and then there's the other. But then I think the main thing is to look it up to see, and, and don't be sort of intimidated by these weird uh, alien-sounded names, and, and look it up and figure out when, which box it fits into. And then that can help you sort of generally think about mechanism of action and, and, and OIs that you can get from it. So in this particular patient, uh, treated on, on the checkpoint blockade inhibitor, HIV infected, uh, coming in with uh, fecal incontinence and diarrhea, uh, this was actually checkpoint inhibitor-associated colitis because you're activating the immune system and you're getting this inflammatory reaction in the, in the gut. Um, and in, in this case, they did all the regular things that you do in the beginning, which is like check OMP times three, Giardia, uh, bacterial cultures, et cetera. All that was negative. They did uh, colonoscopy and, and saw these very characteristic lesions. And given the high propensity to develop colitis after checkpoint blockade inhibitors, uh, the investigators immediately started uh, prednisone high dose and infliximab, again, a TNF-alpha inhibitor to block the immune activation. And the TNF-alpha inhibitor is probably what's going to get the patient in trouble eventually, unless you think about some of those classic OIs like TB and uh, Hep B and all the things that we talked about earlier in the course. But luckily, this patient, despite stopping the trial early, still has skin cancer, squamous cell CA, in partial remission. So the last box uh, that we're going to talk about is the new kid on the block, which is CAR T cells. And you can see one of the recent headlines, gene therapy was a boy's last chance to stop leukemia, and it worked. This was actually a patient from uh, Children's Hospital, uh, Benioff Children's Hospital in San Francisco. And uh, it, was one of the, it was the first patient we actually treated uh, in our center for um, leukemia with CAR T cells uh, with a miraculous recovery. So what are CAR T cells? It's actually very science fiction-y, probably the most science fiction-y of all the drugs that I talked about today. You basically take somebody's um, T cells uh, out, you draw white blood cells, T cells from the cancer patient. We ship them to this factory in so Southern California and they basically engineer and put a receptor on these T cells that can recognize tumor antigen. So basically, um, the CAR T cell stands for chimeric ant antigen receptor, and chimera, like we talked about earlier in this talk, just means that it's made up of different parts, like that mythologic Greek creature with breeds fire, et cetera. So you're putting this receptor onto a patient's T cells. It can then, and they multiply that, and they make like millions of them in this factory. Then they ship them back two weeks later, and you infuse them in the patient. And now these T cells are like zoomed in onto the malignancies because you engineered the T cells to like attack that specific cancer. So it zooms in and it starts attacking the cancer. But a lot of dangerous things occur at that point as well because they also start attacking uh, other parts of the body, including where the cancer might be hiding out. So one of the adult patients I recently treated a few weeks ago had some undiagnosed parts of his. Uh, lymphoma in his uh, pleural space. So what happened is when he got his CAR T cells, the CAR T cells just went to that pleura and basically went like crazy. 
and open and, and there was a fistula between his pleura and his his uh, peritoneum. So that that was probably a, a, a side effect of this activated immune system. So um, basically, you know, the rest of the slides that you'll have will tell you how to evaluate the patient uh, prior to TNF alpha inhibitor use, which are some of the things we talked about. There's some guidance about evaluating during biologic use as well. And basically, hopefully you have a framework for um, approaching a patient with uh, who's on a biologic. First of all, I think the main thing is not to be intimidated by the name, look it up, and then talk to friends if you have any questions, but not to sort of like look at that thing on the drug list and think that other people are gonna look at it because uh, sometimes people miss things. Thanks very much for your attention. Thanks very much, Peter. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, drug companies like those long names because then it makes us use the brand names, I guess, right? <laughs> Do we see that in our field? Yes. Um, so there are questions, uh, question cards going around. If you have any questions for Peter, uh, we'll have a couple uh, minutes. There's a microphone in front if anyone insists on speaking. Great. Peter, one, one of the things that um, I think is worth bringing up is as we're going to two drug therapies, um, some of which don't contain tenofovir, that's not a lot of what we're doing, um, but we usually don't have problems with hepatitis yep. B, but we have to remember if we choose a therapy that doesn't have good hep B activity, um, and a patient goes on to one of these, we need to be very careful about their um, hepatitis B, especially if they're, they're antigen negative, but core antibody positive. Those are the dangerous Yeah, those are the danger ones. So in the core antibody positive, but antigen negative, we sometimes sort of like become very complacent with that patient. And we think, well, nothing is gonna happen to that patient, but actually on a biologic, that hep B that may be seemingly innocuous can, can be reactivated. So what people usually do is, is uh, and you can work in concert with the person who prescribed the biologic, usually a rheumatologist, to really check hep B viral load during the course of the, that core positive patient. So here's a question that's not exactly um, pitched to you, but I'll do it anyway. Shingrix, uh, the new uh, uh, vaccine, is that safe in HIV? Is there any point about that? So Shingrix, I love Shingrix. It's one of my favorite vaccines next to the HPV vaccine because it's so efficacious. In the world of ID, we always think about vaccines as being efficacious, but when you reach above 95%, it's, it's, uh, it's really impressive. So Shingrix, one pearl is that it's effective, much more effective because the, the dose, you know, the particular uh, uh, dose is much higher in terms of protection. And then... The second pearl about Chingrix is that it's safe. So it's, it's non-live, it's non-live attenuated. It's uh, completely uh, innocuous to give patients uh, at all CD4 count levels, basically. So again, remember I talked about VZV as being one of the most common complications following a biologic. Uh, we can actually make, make a big impact on vaccinating our patients. Uh, of course, it's being ruled out slowly over the country, but. Some people may not get it yet, but when they do, when they are eligible and you have it, uh, that's probably going to be my recommendation. But you should warn your patients that it yeah. does cause a lot of pain. I've, I've had it myself. <laughs> um, so a question about a patient with RA, um, not tolerating his initial therapy well, 
rheumatologist wants to move up to something more aggressive, can you talk about what, what some of the least immunosuppressive methotrexate or other things? Yeah, so they, they first start with um, methotrexate to quiet down the first sort of flare of RA or any, many of these rheumatologic diseases. A lot of rheumatologists would just start old-fashioned prednisone as sort of like the first line agent together with 6-MPU or one of these other agents, methotrexate. But very quickly, you know, these, these drugs have their toxicities as well. Patients don't like them, Plaquenil, et cetera. Then they may, you may have that discussion about the TNF-alpha inhibitor use. But that gives you, but it's not really an emergency decision. You never have an emergency decision to use these agents. So you should work with your rheumatologist and they will prompt you with some of the traditional things like, you know, TB screening. I think everybody knows about that. But some of the other ones like, you know, endemic risk for, for fungi or, you know, even thinking about VZV because they wouldn't, you know, have you vaccinated your patient against VZV and the hep B issue because they may think, you know, well, these guys in the HIV clinic, they're always thinking about HEPI, so I may not have to emphasize that as much, particularly that core antibody uh, positive patient. So I think you are very empowered to rest that decision from the rheumatologist and work with them because it's not usually a, a first-line thing you have to jump to immediately. And there's always prednisone that sort of like quiets it down before they start the other agents. And so the last question is my favorite of all time. Uh, Peter, are you from Trinidad? Yes, I'm from Trinidad and Tobago, <laughs> home of the steel band Calypso and Limbo. Seriously. <laughs> Good. Thank you. Thanks, Peter.